Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, what should a U.S. natural infrastructure strategy look like? My guest is Todd Bridges, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Senior Research Scientist for Environmental Science and the national lead for the Corps' Engineering with Nature initiative. Coming up, I talk with Todd about the nature-based solutions we're not thinking about, whether we should be using concentrated versus distributed models of natural infrastructure investment, and whether technology and data science have a place in managing nature-based solutions. I started our conversation by asking Todd a deceptively simple question. What is natural infrastructure? There are a whole range of definitions that are circulating across the international community for nature-based solutions or natural infrastructure. I have a personal preference for short and compact definitions that hopefully carry more clarity, but it's, for me, conserving and developing and engineering with nature for the benefit of people and nature. That's my short and sweet for natural infrastructure. I like that. There's a lot to unpack there, right? So let's put the, for the benefits of people and nature aside, and let's start with the active, with the verbs there. So, so there's conserving, there's designing. Was that the second one? And there's engineering. I don't think you said design. You said a separate word, right? You know, like managing. Uh Uh-huh. So tell me about those and the differences, because those are important, I think. Well, there is a lot of existing nature in our landscape. Let's say if we just constrained ourselves to North America and say the 48 contiguous states in North America, when the country was formed in 1776, The best estimate is is that we had probably about 200 million acres of wetlands. And today, we have about 100 million acres of wetlands in the lower 48 states. That natural wetland is infrastructure because it provides functions that we would recognize as, if you will, engineering-related functions. We could talk about that, whether you're talking about flood storage, storage of flood waters or drought resilience or the cleansing processes with respect to nutrients or pollutants that wetlands can provide. There's a whole range of functions that wetlands can provide. And those wetlands were here and human development is influenced with, that's why we've lost about half of the wetlands that were here before European colonization. So that's what I mean, conserving. You, you want to protect and conserve what you have because you have it. It's in the bank. Right, that's good. So I have a couple of follow-up questions on that, but let's move to the engineering part because I think that's the interesting part from the standpoint of the core and also from the standpoint of, of what a traditional nature NGO would do. So tell me about the engineering part. Well, there's lots of engineering potential in relation to restoring function that maybe has been lost or structures to keep going back to the wetlands idea. There are more forms of natural infrastructure I'm sure we'll get into, but, but how can we engineer that is how can we take uh, action intervene to contribute some human design 
and technology perhaps even to support, enhance, develop what is inherently natural. And this is where the term kind of nature-based, you know, there's what nature is providing, then there's some elements perhaps that, that humans can add to that through the process of engineering uh, to bring back and to support those natural processes or maybe to add further to them. So say restoring wetlands that maybe were at one time lost would be an example of that. Yeah, I like that. A couple of things I think that you said that are interesting to follow up on. The, the first is function, function being the key objective and key deliverable. Talk to me about function. And, and where I'm going with this is, you know, sort of our tradition holds that nature has this value for nature's sake, which is true. And I wouldn't argue with that. But I think you're pushing that beyond that value set in this case. So talk to me about that. Yeah, in terms of, you know, ecology, we think of structure and function. Even in terms of architecture, there's structure and function. But in terms of function, natural systems provide a whole range of functions or services, ecosystem services, that we can value for a whole range of reasons. I listed some, again, going back to wetlands, flood storage, groundwater infiltration. We could talk about water quality contributions. We could talk about habitat value for species. We could talk about social value in terms of recreation for people. So there's a whole range of services that can flow from functions related to wetlands, the functions that they provide. And there's a whole body of work that's been developing in the area of ecosystem services and ecosystem science and ecology, and even in economics and natural resource economics around the world over the last couple of decades, trying to get at quantifying and measuring what these services and associated values are so that information can be drawn into decision-making about conserving and managing and restoring and engineering nature. Good. Let's move on to infrastructure generally. And we're talking about natural infrastructure here, but there's a portfolio of built infrastructure out there. And I think there's historically, there have been debates, I think, in the literature and the scientific literature about sort of replaceability of natural and, and built infrastructure. And, and there's this notion, I think, that's immeasurable. Maybe it's measurable that, you know, if we just put all nature back in its place, everything would be hunky-dory. Talk to me about that from both that philosophical point of view, but also from the really practical point of view, which is that the core manages a, a massive portfolio of built infrastructure. And where does nature fit into that? It's a good question. And, and I appreciate you acknowledging there's some kind of philosophy and ethics, and economics, these fields and these ways of thinking that influence how we attach value to something. And nature has its own inherent value. And that can be informed by our kind of philosophical and ethical points of view. But as, as it relates to how people interact with nature, there are lots of tangibles, very kind of pragmatic, if you will, ways in which nature supports humans. And I think that's part of 
what is motivating work in this space of ecosystem services is to understand the layers, the channels of services, if you will, that are being provided by natural systems so that people can understand how their actions with respect to development, let's say, or other actions, how that influences that value that's within nature that we rely on. There's a lot of value. I think one of the highlights I would make here from the executive order that the president issued on Earth Day this year, where there's a whole section within that executive order that relates to nature-based solutions, what we're talking about here is natural infrastructure. And one of the provisions of that executive order is to commit the federal government to perform the first ever assessment of nature value in the United States. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the national climate assessments that are performed across the interagency and federal government and others. Well, this is going to be the first assessment of nature value. You need to know what you have in order to be able to design conservation or management or engineering that will sustain that value over time. I think that's a really exciting commitment to be made by the president and the executive because there's been a lot of attention by organizations like the American Society of Civil Engineering, you know, ASCE, which grades the status of what we would call here in this discussion conventional infrastructure like roads and highways and bridges and engineering that supports energy distribution, et cetera, et cetera. And we have a lot of aging infrastructure in the United States of this conventional variety. It it requires reinvestment to be able to maintain it, to give a figure. You know, there are different ways of assessing this, but the replacement value of the water resources infrastructure that the Corps of Engineers is responsible for, the replacement value for our current portfolio, you know, is pushing something on the order of, say, $300 billion dollars. I've heard that number cited. It's kind of hard to put your finger exactly on what that figure is, but you know we're responsible for managing a lot of stuff in the form of concrete and rock and steel and these materials that are the building blocks, if you will, of what we traditionally understand as infrastructure, but there's so much more out there. There's so much more out there in terms of the millions and millions and millions of acres of public lands. They're managed by the Corps of Engineers and a number of other agencies and states. You mentioned a dollar value, which I know is a shot in the dark at some point. Like it's got some fuzz around it, and that's fine. And that was for built infrastructure. When we think about nature and the potential for for nature to provide a complementary, not a replacement solution, how much? How much do we need to do? What do those numbers look like, you know, ballpark? Well, those numbers, and you're familiar with some of this literature as well. I mean, if you if you consider the value in the form of ecosystem services being provided by nature, if you will, around the world, the number is trillions and trillions of dollars annually in the form of ecosystem services that are being provided. So when you have something of value, you will want to protect it. You want to conserve it. You want to sustain that value over time. I think this is a very exciting period where there's work going on by a number of people around the world trying to understand and measure and quantify the trillions of 
dollars worth of value that natural systems are providing to communities and society as a whole, because that should be informing our approaches for how we you interact with and conserve, protect, restore, and engineer that nature into the future. I think the ecosystem services arguments are are compelling, but they've been around a while and not particularly influenced policy like they probably could have. And not to roll that under the bus, but I want to pivot a little bit towards the restoration, towards the engineering piece and, and ask you about sort of the investment that's necessary in order to either shore up function of existing built infrastructure or improve it. We've talked about this before, right? There are pilot projects, there are bigger than pilot projects. But when we think about what's needed, especially in the face of climate change, what does that look like? What's the order of magnitude? What's the number of acres of investment or however you want to quantify it? I just want the listeners to get a feel for the scale of the engineering piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I sometimes cite a project out west, actually, in California that may be one of the oldest projects that could fairly wear the title a nature-based solution. And that's a project called the Yolo Bypass in Sacramento, California. It's actually in a large area around Sacramento, California. And there was a series of very significant floods in the late 19th century that really had a devastating effect on Sacramento. And, and it became increasingly clear that, if you will, a levee's only approach was just not going to cut it there. That Sacramento River is a, is a beast of a river. I mean, flows in the summer and during dry periods may only be a few thousand cubic feet per second, but it can generate flows during wet periods that approach average flows in the Mississippi River, you know, 400,000 CFS. So it's a very flashy, you know, system and a very significant one. And so very early on in the 20th century, an approach was taken to combine engineering through the construction of what are called weirs, you know, basically structures that deflect flow off of the river during high flow events onto a landscape that's called the Yolo Bypass. In this case, it's 59,000 acres of land. 75% of this land is privately owned, and the, at times that land, agricultural land, is inundated by receiving these floodwaters off of the river. That's done through easements. That 75% of that land is privately owned land, but the balance of it's about 16,000 acres, I believe, is included within what's called the Yolo Bypass Wildlife Area. And it's a beautiful area of wetlands. I actually visited the Yolo Bypass Wildlife Area. It's only 20 minutes from downtown Sacramento on a Thursday morning in December of last year. And it was a beautiful morning. There was this low fog, which happens in the valley in the early part of the day, and it slowly lifted. But there were dozens and dozens of people out there birding, looking at the waterfowl, all these species that were, you know, in the period of migration on the Pacific Flyway. So you have this combination of natural value and engineering value, making room or space for these, for water in times of high flows, of flood flows. That's an integrated, I would say, nature-based solution. And 
that scale of project, in this case, you know, 59,000, 60,000 acres, we need projects like that, in my personal opinion, many places across the country. In fact, even projects larger than that. So I can say the types of interventions that we need with respect to climate change are natural hazards from flooding to drought and everything in between, but also in respect to just generating the value that communities around the country want and desire. You know, it's hundreds of thousands, millions of acres, if you want to quantify it in terms of space, where we need to be directing our attention for how we can work with nature, partner with nature to develop this natural infrastructure function and service. I like that example. It, it kind of hits on a couple of themes that we've talked about already. It, it hits on the either or issue because it's a system that's managed with levees and dams, some of which are managed by the Corps. And it's a cooperative, natural built infrastructure solution in which you have a valve which redirects otherwise levied waters to a wetland that used to exist, but doesn't exist now. And then it also brings in the values piece, right? We're providing some function to people, which is flood control and water supply, which are both a piece of Central Valley Project and, and that system. But it also provides an opportunity for, for nature to be nature, maybe in ways that it wasn't nature before, but it's nature. And yeah. that has its own value for bird watchers and and for ecocentric values that are beyond the anthropocentric ones that we've talked about. The first structure, the Sacramento Weir, that was a part of that system that was developed over years, that first structure went in, was built and put in in 1916. Right. So that project's over a hundred years old. So we know how to do projects. We collectively, you know, society, we know how to do projects on the scale that's needed. We need to challenge ourselves to think on the scale that the challenges we confront right now, as well as the opportunities that we have before us, that at the scale that those challenges and opportunities actually prompt us to consider. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's also, that example also touches on scale. It's a big project, but mm -hmm. bigger are needed and more of that kind of scale of project are needed in order to get to where we need to get for climate resilience. Right. You mentioned the word intervention. I like the word intervention. It has this context of something's wrong and we've got to fix it, which I think is, is interesting from the standpoint of a, of a pure nature concept. And I don't want to go down the philosophical road on this. What I want to talk about is other interventions that you think exemplify an engineering with nature approach. So we've talked about wetlands. We've talked about combining weirs with farmland, for example, to get wetlands, which is out of the box, right? Because no one thinks about farmland as nature because it's used. But in this case, some of the time it's nature and some of the time it's farmland. You've talked about infiltration. You've talked about a number of different qualities of, of nature-based solutions. Talk to me about other interventions, maybe in California, maybe in other places where you think there's a lot of potential. Sure. Yeah. Trees. I use trees frequently in engaging groups and audiences on this topic and saying, you know, trees are infrastructure. And when you think of trees and collections of trees, we would call forests. They provide a whole range of valuable 
if you will, services and functions. If you consider, you know, the heat regulating functions of trees and forests, you know, shaded surfaces can be in the summertime 20 to 45 degrees cooler than unshaded surfaces or the evapotranspiration. I mean, trees basically are nature's air conditioners, you know, can reduce surface temperatures in the summertime by, you know, several degrees Fahrenheit or reducing heat loss from buildings that are surrounded by trees during the winter by, you know, moderating the influence of winds. They support air quality as well as healthy hydrology, if you will. So one other form of intervention is, if you will, planting trees, including reforestation. That's another transformation that's occurred let's say here be specific to the United States of America and the lower 48 states, the country was really covered with trees, large portions of it. And those trees for a number of reasons were, you know, logged and farmland was opened up. So, you know, are there ways for us to be strategic about reintroducing woody vegetation and trees that would enable us to restore some natural functions as those that I've just mentioned? You know, and in connection with that, there's soil and there's a, I think, a big movement underway around the world. And in terms of regenerative agriculture, we've basically been in a phase of kind of the industrialization of agriculture in the United States for well over 100 years. And there are certain consequences that have resulted from that. So the idea of regenerative agriculture and the importance of soil health and soil carbon with respect to not only hydrology, because the more carbon there is in the soil, the more water it can hold and help infiltrate into groundwater supplies, but also in the carbon cycle in general. So trees and soil can be thought of in a sense as uh, infrastructure because they can provide services that can support what we might associate with an engineering function, you know, like a water treatment plant. Well, maybe if you have the right soils and wetlands and trees in an area, maybe you really could get past or not need as many water treatment plants in your system. I like that. I mean, it's a complementary. The way that I have been thinking about it is more in terms of pieces of the water cycle where there's storage or flux. But to think about it as as elemental as trees and soil, I think is really productive because it makes it more general, I think. So I like that a lot. Coming up, what does a U.S. natural infrastructure strategy need to look like to move the needle? And what kind of science do we need to know engineering with nature actually benefits us? More from my conversation with Todd next. We've covered the either or, and we've covered kind of different interventions. And also the California example gives a good example of kind of the the scale and and the impact of that scale. So let's move on to layering value. You talked about different ways to value nature-based solutions and and their impact on on a water system or on, on resilience. I'm back up from this question and, and just give some context to it. So I work with a lot of Fortune 500 companies on water stewardship. So if you're a, a beverage company and you want to be net zero in water, but your product has water in it, you're never going to get there just by efficiency. 
in the plant, right? You have to do something beyond the four walls of the factory, and that typically is nature-based solutions. One of the complaints that I think a lot of companies have about the process is, is that um, it's twofold. One, there's not a project pipeline for us to invest in. And two, we tend to be doing random acts of kindness. And I would broaden this beyond the Fortune 500 companies to any actor in this space. You know, there's an opportunity that comes up, you do it. It doesn't matter if it's strategic or not because it's available and that feeds into the pipeline issue too. So talk to me about the need for strategy and how that would look holistically. Like what does that strategy need to be informed by in order to move the needle? Yeah, a lot of thoughts about this. You know, I, I think that the either or mental trap, I'll just build from there because there's sometimes, you know, people kind of in discussing and thinking about things, they simplify the argument to the point of the absurd where, you know, it's an either or. You can either have conventional infrastructure or you can have natural infrastructure when it's really an and proposition. No, you can have both, right? We're looking at combinations of these and that's where the action is really is the combination of these. But you have to think differently. You have to also uh, behave differently you know, at an organizational level. So if I could extend this idea of the either or to the private sector is, well, there's what one company can do on their own as a part of their, their business development and their business as a whole. But then there are also what multiple companies maybe in a watershed or in a space could partner together to do something maybe bigger than what they could do as a single actor and a single intervention. And I would expand that further. Well, what could within a watershed, you could even say, you know, what about the Mississippi River watershed? What could the private companies and the private interests do in that space in partnership and in collaboration with the public sector? So how can we, to use your word, coordinate if we want to go a step more formal than coordinate, actually actively collaborate with each other, or if we go a step beyond that, say actually actively partner with each other where we're making investments, you know, on our organizational level, but we're making efforts to kind of coordinate that investment in a way so that we have a greater impact for the good than we can do in independent single efforts on their own. That's where I see a lot of potential in the future because of, to link back to this scale issue, because the scale of interventions for nature-based solutions, I see, you know, in the decades to come, the scale is very large, is what we need. Not just to address the, you know, the downside problem of natural hazards that are presented to us, but also to, to capture the value and to preserve that value for future generations. So the scale of projects that's needed is big, from my point of view. But to deliver projects at that kind of scale, at big scale, means you have to partner at a big scale. You have to do partnering at the level that the problem or the opportunity and the solution demands. I like that. I mean, I think the paradigm shift that you're talking about is one that NGOs talk about a lot, which is called collective action. And it's collective action in that same context that you're talking about, which is it's not just one company, it's many, because at the end of the day, 
companies, one single company is never going to have enough money to invest to scale these solutions. But multiple actors, including multiple companies and also this public-private partnership piece that you're talking about is super important for getting to the, the solution. Getting back to the, the strategy piece, there's still a piece that I think is missing and one that I think you can speak to, which is about the science. And so even in that collective action framework where there are enough resources to do a project like Yolo Bypass that matters, there's almost never the resources needed to do the science that's needed for the strategy. And so talk to me about what you're doing at the core that might support that mission and, and make that more palatable for those companies to engage in collective action with strategy that's based on science. It's a good question. Decisions on the scale of what we've been talking about must be based on science, say science-based, science-informed. I might say, you know, evidence-based and evidence-informed. Nobody's that I know is expecting that decisions on the scale of what we're talking about here, you know, should be based on fairy tale science or some forest spirit science. I mean, that's not what anybody's asking for because we need some, some assurance that investments that are being made, whether they're on the public side or the private side, that there's some payoff there. The value is going to be created from that. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I believe public, private partnerships in the space of creating natural infrastructure can help us accomplish and actually accelerate our progress is because of risk sharing. Different organizations, because of their mandates and responsibilities, have different tolerances for different amounts of risk. But we all recognize that you know, science, if you will, information and evidence that supports good practice, good intervention, good engineering should help us, you know, buy down some of the, the risks when you think about trying something new and of innovating. And, and I want to be clear from my point of view, innovation is a requirement, you know, to make progress. The kinds of projects we've been talking about here are going to require innovation. So it's going to also require organizations to to accept a certain amount of risk and to manage those risks, of course, to be responsible about it. But there is no new done. Nothing can be innovative without there being some risk associated with that. Science is very important to that. And in, in our engineering with nature program within the core, we're making investments in developing science and engineering tools to help support the types of projects we're talking about. And we're working to bring together government research across multiple agencies. It's the core and others and academia across the country, as well as the private sector, private sector that has an interest in developing science and actually using science. And they have their own experience that they can bring projects that they have developed, that they can bring to this collective activity of of developing the wherewithal, the capability to deliver natural infrastructure projects. And if we can share that information with each other, we'll be able to make more progress, more rapid progress together in implementing the kind of projects that we're talking about here. You brought up two things there in what was, a, I think, a really rich answer. You, know, you brought up many things, but two that kind of resonated with me are, we have to have science. And then the other one was, 
risk and sharing risk. And I want to pivot that a little bit towards positive. It's courage to take these projects on. And that kind of brings me to another topic, which is what kind of work is needed, empirical work, to know that these things are going to work. And I think you have some experience with this, with engineering with nature. I mean, there's some of the projects within that network are focused on this. So how do we get to the point where we know this intervention is going to give these benefits and within these bounds, and here's what happens if not. It's important to make investments in a variety of pathways, I guess, in this regard. You know, evidence doesn't come in one flavor, <laughs> you know, it could come from in multiple flavors. There's evidence that comes from monitoring existing projects, let's say natural infrastructure projects, and over a period of time, understanding how they're responding to conditions and how they're performing from either a an engineering or a physical point of view or from an ecological point of view over time. That's one you know, source of evidence or science. But then there are others like studying natural analogs. We have wetlands and mangroves around portions of our coastlines in the United States. Those systems have been there for millennia. If mangroves in Florida were that sensitive to impacts from hurricanes, there probably wouldn't be 500,000 acres of mangroves in Florida, but that's how many acres of mangroves Florida has. So there's some natural resilience there. So we could study natural analogs and understand historical development of these features and draw from that inferences with respect to engineering. There's also the power of the coupling of physical modeling and numerical modeling. So in the case of physical modeling, what I mean is kind of bringing scaled versions of your system into a large laboratory system and you push waves at it and you, you measure in, in detail in a more reductionist kind of way, you know, how is the system responding to the physical forces that we're subjecting it to in a wave flume, for example, or tank. But then numerical modeling, you know, has dramatically increased its power in the last several decades and the computing power that's readily accessible to organizations across the country and around the world. Those are other sources of evidence that can be brought into this kind of multiple line of evidence approach that we need to be able to support the decision making for building projects and systems that are inherently complex. I think we need to recognize that complexity exists. We also need to recognize that there's no meaningful project where there's zero uncertainty or there's zero risk. I mean, that just doesn't exist. Engineering, in a sense, as a profession, is making progress and proceeding with interventions despite the uncertainty, right? You want to, you have to manage it in some fashion, but there's no uncertainty-free zone out there for the kinds of problems and opportunities that are in front of us today. So we need to think broadly about, you know, evidence, how you assemble it, how you use it, the kind of decision support tools and means that you have to bring that evidence to bear in decision-making processes. I feel hopeful about all of this, actually. I think there's tremendous progress being made in the United States and in countries around the world to deliver projects like this. And I think one of the upshots is that, and I think this goes back to the either or debate, is that there's there's risk in built infrastructure. And I think one of the critical paths forward for 
for nature-based solutions and also for coordinating natural and built infrastructure is measuring that risk on the same scale and with the same methods for both types of interventions. And they are both interventions in this context, right? Yeah, the risks are, are quite real. If we just you know focus for a second on what we consider to be the, the conventional infrastructure, whether you're talking about dams and levees, for example, with respect to flooding or or if you think about drought, again, on the other end of the spectrum, if you look at reservoirs in the West right now, Lake Mead, our country's largest reservoir, Hoover Dam, impounded Lake Mead. Lake Mead's at its lowest level in its history, at 35% of its capacity. Its peak water level was in 1983, and it's been all downhill since then. And the West, the Southwest, is gripped in a mega drought right now that's more intense based on the science, paper published in Nature Climate Change just a few months ago, a mega drought that's more intense than any drought in the Southwest in 1,200 years. So there's some vulnerability in the form of a very large infrastructure project that some say, and I'm inclined to agree with him, it's not going to recover. It's never going to be what was envisioned back in the 20s when it was conceived and between 1931 and 1936 when it was actually built. And I would say I visited Hoover Dam this past winter for the second time. And back on the risk-taking, no structure had ever been built like that before. And it was at the time of construction, I believe it was the largest concrete structure on the planet. And the techniques of construction and engineering that were used there, there were some that basically had never been tried before, but nevertheless, that project went forward and was successful, you know, for the last almost 100 years now, that project has been there. So I think we can work through, there's historical precedent, I just cited one Hoover Dam, where where apparently we're able to manage our way through the uncertainties and the risks and proceed with, I would call them audacious projects. And we need some audacious natural infrastructure projects to address the challenges and the opportunities in front of us today. Excellent that you use the word audacious on the Audacious Water podcast. Just have to point that. Um, <laughs> I, I love the I word. I love the word right. audacious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, a couple more questions and then we'll wrap this up. But two are maybe listeners might think they're in the weeds, but they're not. And then we'll move to a final one. But the next two are about space and time and how you do nature-based solutions in a more innovative way than we have done conventional infrastructure in the past. The first is space, and it's about where to put stuff and how big, and whether the centralized approach, the what Peter Glick from the Pacific Institute would call a hard path solution, or whether more soft path solutions, which are which tend to be more nature-based and, and also distributed in space, will add up to the same sum as a centralized product. Talk to me about that philosophy and, and how much space we have to innovate within it. Yeah, I think this is a very good conceptual frame for part of what we're talking about here with natural infrastructure, because there are distinctions between natural infrastructure solutions and, and maybe conventional, what we think of as the conventional infrastructure solutions. Space is one of them. And I sort of frame this in some of my communications as you have the concentrated model and the distributed model. And we could, I could go back to the Lake Mead. You know, you could put all your 
water eggs in that one basket, that mega project of Lake Mead and Hoover Dam. That's a that's concentrated, focused infrastructure investment in one place in one project. Now, a distributed approach to that would be, well, how might we use in the Southwest what are called, you know, check dams, small features built with in situ rock and channels and small riverbeds that are intended to slow water down, to give it time on the land. If you could think about this smaller scale, there's actually a rancher in, in Arizona. He and his wife installed, I think, nearly 20,000 of these small check dam structures across their ranch in Arizona and really transformed the hydrology of their watershed through that approach. So that's a distributed model of intervention using what I would say more nature-based approaches that can be done, I think, in a way that's complementary to the, if you will, the concentrated model of a big project with a big footprint in one place. There's a way to bring these two in harmony. I'm not trying to pit them against each other. I'm just saying this is a spectrum that we need to think about. And what's the combination? What's the balance that the context and the circumstance really requires? I, that's one of the reasons why I think we need more focus and more conversation about nature-based solutions because in this country, we've spent the last 100 plus years kind of all in on the concentrated conventional infrastructure model. I mean, that's what we know. That's what we collectively know how to do. That's what we've done. Now is the time to be thinking and being and devote some attention and some focus and some resources to some alternative and complementary approaches on the nature side. And we live in a big country. We have a lot of space. There's a lot of space. The president's other commitment to 30 by 30 of, you know, conserving 30% of our land in a public context makes me think, well, where should that constant conserved, you know, effort be? You know, what land to conserve? And then beyond that, how should we then invest, if you will, in that conserved land? Are there ways that we could enhance, if you will, the services that are provided through conservation, restoration, and engineering. Great. So the time element, so space element, we're in an experimental phase with understanding whether distributed or concentrated applications or interventions of nature-based solutions are, are more effective, I think. We're also in an exploratory phase of understanding whether a distributed nature-based approach can, can complement the concentrated traditional infrastructures that we have and make them more resilient to the climate change effects that we're seeing, which I think is sort of a sort of a double win for the core in some ways, because it speaks to the time piece of, of managing that built infrastructure. And I want to pivot to that time piece. We've talked a lot about building stuff and everybody knows that when the core builds something, it doesn't walk away from it. It manages it. The core is working on the operations of the dams, the maintenance of the, the levee system, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see, and this is going back to I think the first question that I asked you when you mentioned technology, do you see a role of technology for managing the operations of nature-based solutions? So this is going beyond, do we need to manage them, which we know we do, but is there a role for data science or 
weirs or things that we think of as, as being built to make sure that the function of that nature-based solution is really delivered. Yeah, there's definitely a need for technology in this space. And one of the terms that's used in connection to the point you're just making here is the kind of the operations and maintenance of a piece of infrastructure or an investment that's made over time. I referenced earlier in our conversation the fact that we have a lot of aging conventional infrastructure that's in need of reinvestment, to rehabilitate it, to repair it, to kind of bring it back. Because systems, that's what the law of entropy tells us, you know, these systems kind of run down after a time. We all understand that from just our house maintenance activities at our own homes. So there's a maintenance requirement here. You want to sustain these functions over time. And you want to do that efficiently. And, and this is a question that comes up, well, what's going to be the, the maintenance requirement for these natural infrastructure? I would say that we need to be pursuing natural infrastructure and looking forward to maybe we don't have to intervene so much, right? If this system is natural and you have the supporting processes and functions in that context, hopefully you're doing it in a way so that, you know, Mother Nature is taking care of Mother Nature, that you're not having to go back there and tweak it all the time. We're not talking about building English gardens someplace or a zoo. I think in this respect, if we do it right, and as we learn how to build natural infrastructure, we want to tap into nature's ability to take care of nature and derive this kind of nature-based sustainability value from such an investment in nature. And that's a very different, I think, model of what a project is and how to work a project than conventional infrastructure, which if the concrete flood wall falls down, then people have to go rebuild it. You know, solar radiation is not going to do that. But with respect to mangroves or marshes that might be affected by a coastal storm, well, if you have the right conditions, you know, solar radiation a little time and it's going to rebuild itself. But conventional engineering does not repair itself, at least current technology. And on your point about technology, we and data, of course, and I think our abilities to make use of advanced sensors and sensor arrays and large, big data, that we can understand better what's happening in nature, what's happening at my natural infrastructure project, so that we understand what its condition is and when it might be you know, approaching a threshold where some intervention might be needed to preserve it in some fashion before it gets too bad and becomes too costly to intervene. So I think there's tremendous opportunity in the space of technology and data science and big data to understand what nature is doing so that we're in a better position to replicate that through our engineering to support future natural infrastructure development. The value of data and technology from that standpoint is is in creating an early warning system for failure, which lowers the risk, but also in generating a treasure trove of data that you can use to mine for scaling those solutions to other places. I like that. That second piece, I think, is pretty novel and I think not discussed that much in, in this context, but super important. Yeah, a lot of sharing. There's a lot of sharing opportunities here. Right. I think, and the more that we can share across organizational boundaries and disciplinary, if you will, boundaries using data and science and evidence, the more progress we will make together. That's great. I'm going to close with one more, one more question, which is one that we've discussed a lot in the context of, of the Engineering with Nature project. And 
And it's one about kind of in the environmental justice sphere, but it's one about equity and, and how we build these projects, especially if they're distributed, especially if they're large scale, such that, you know, the, the direct impacts of their construction are shared equitably and the outcomes are shared equitably. Talk to me about that and, and where we are in the field with understanding that part. Yeah, there are tremendous opportunities to address the issue of equity through natural infrastructure. I, I've said in the past, and I'll probably continue to say, everybody needs nature. And then I would say, and some people need it even more. And I'll harken back to a historical reference here to Frederick Law Olmsted, who many have acknowledged is really the, the father, maybe grandfather, great-grandfather of landscape architecture in the United States. And he and his firm at the time designed Central Park in New York City in the 19th century. And, and he actually worked diligently with medical professionals in New York City to get them to advertise and encourage the poor to come to the park because he believed that it would be good for their health. And he wrote at one time, says, it is a scientific fact that the occasional contemplation of natural scenes is favorable to the health and vigor of men. And since he said those words, you know, well over a hundred years ago, the science has been catching up with this, really in an explosion, I think, of science over the last couple of decades, linking nature exposure and nature experience and time in nature in a whole variety of ways, even just trees, contact with trees in an urban setting, the value that that provides to people in terms of their, not just their mental health, that's which is very important for sure, but also physical health, like things like blood pressure and immunity. And this science is so important and needs to actually be factored in in a more significant way, our decision-making about investments, particularly natural infrastructure investments, you know, the, the health economics, if you will, of this. And so I firmly believe everybody needs nature and some people need it even more. And I think those in disadvantaged and underserved communities in particular, there are places where I grew up in California, in the San Joaquin Valley of California, it is a park poor region and also one of the poorest regions in the country. And that's what I would like to see from where I was born and raised is to see people having more access to nature on that vast agricultural landscape. But those opportunities exist all over, even where you are in New Orleans and other urban settings around the country and around the world. Having just been in Central Park last week on a college trip with my daughter, I can totally appreciate that example. And I think it's a very good one. And especially if you think about it, at scale, and especially if you think about it outside of the urban context and the rural context, like you were describing from the San Joaquin Valley, there's lots of opportunity there. And I think that's a perfect place to stop this conversation, which has been really good. We've had a lot of good ones, but this is maybe the best one so far. So I really appreciate you being on the show and look forward to, to working with you more. And hopefully we can have you or others from the network on the show later in its course. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It's been a pleasure. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.